Talking to myself Well, I'm talking to myself I'm just talking to myself I'm writing it down a page at a time Revising the line And the thoughts that divide The memories and recollections inside Deep down inside my mind What a time it happened So and so and me and you To make you smile Hey I said I'm I'm talking to myself And anybody else Who's got ears to hear? Always found strength from the unconscious and to help me through times I was blue. Looking down into gloom with no room to be me or you. I'm talking to myself. to the strange brew podcast my name is jason barnard and that was chris jagger and talking to myself that's one of the tracks from his new album mixing up the medicine and that's also the title of his new memoir i've got the great pleasure to welcome chris to talk about both here today it's great to have you on chris no it's a pleasure 
first of all, congratulations on an absolutely brilliant memoir of your life and um, what must be your best album as well. So um, it must be a really exciting period for you at the minute. That's very kind of you. It's funny, isn't it? You get to this age and normally you'd sort of like hang up your boots and stuff. The funny thing about musicians is they haven't got enough money to retire on anyway. You've got to keep on working. Well, apart from the fact you want to keep on working, you've sort of got to keep on working. I'm always amazed by these sort of, you know, rock and rollers that get to a certain age and they have to sort of, you think, mate, why don't you just like, you know, do something really... You know, like, just <laughs> if I had loads of money, I probably wouldn't be doing all this. I mean, I might be doing some music for a bit of fun. If I was sort of Eric Clapton, I'd probably just go down to the local pub and have a gig, you know, or something, you know. It's kind of like, it, especially with this, what we've had with lockdown, who wants to go traveling everywhere? And I mean, we played last night in this little tiny hall in, in the little village it's a real community and they haven't had a gig there for 18 months and people's enthusiasm and appreciation was like amazing to be seen um, I mean it's only you know it's, it's seeing you've been doing this stuff for like 50 years it's not that long a period you're talking about and once you get back into doing it you soon kind of it's like riding a bike you kind of soon slip back into it but for a lot of people coming you know and of course there's still quite a lot of people are very fearful about this covid and apprehensive about coming out you know and it just doesn't look very good at the moment either with uh, uncle boris johnson i mean all those people that uh you know thought jeremy corbyn was this complete twat i mean i I didn't really like him, but I mean, like, he was saying things like everyone should have free broadband connection. They all laughed at him. Um, hello, it wasn't such a bad idea, was it? But it's funny thing you mentioned the book. I realised when I was writing this book, you know, I could put in some political opinions. Why the hell not? You know, why should I be apolitical? So I kind of thought, well, it's my chance to stick in my opinion here. So I just, I thought. You know, well, there's nothing wrong with stating your opinion in a in a fairly kind of honest way because, you know, when you get to a certain age, you definitely have opinion. Waiting in line is, is, is another highlight from your album, Mixing Up the Medicine. Yeah, that's you... not, actually, it's not actually on the album. Oh, isn't it? Was it a single? Yeah, it was just put out with a video. That kind of came after the album was finished and it was too late to include it on the album. It's a shame that, yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, and that's still true now, isn't it? Because they're trying to get people to have their extra jabs and they're not taking it up. Was your book and the album recorded during this sort of lockdown COVID period? No, no Jason. That's a bit of a misnomer because quite a few people have said lockdown album was not a lockdown album. The thing was, I've been toying with doing this book for like since, you know, beginning of the century, practically one way or another. I'd had a few sample chapters and I'd thought of sort of moving it around and that it didn't seem like people really wanted me to, you know, I, I wanted to write my story the way I wanted to write it and mm. not to be told got to be this or that. And the, um, the literary world is quite a sort of, it's very conservative. Mm. I'm amazed how conservative it is. I think they feel that, 
you know that if to be a proper writer you've got to go to university and do a creative writing course and do this and do that and do the other i'm not sure but there's certain rules that they seem to have and when i began writing i started saying i'm not going to obey these rules you know mm. and i initially wrote things saying you know, I'm not going to be corrected by Microsoft and telling me this sentence is too long and and all these kind of things that they try to sort of straight lace you into. So in a way that when I tried getting people interested in my book, they uh, sort of backed off because they thought, oh, well, you know, this is a bit of a pun. And it was really only through BMG and the head guy, Hartwig, and he said, yeah, I like the idea. Go ahead that I was given the sort of green light for it. And so I did it in earnest in 2019. And I took a year off gigging because I figured that I couldn't really go out and do lots of gigs. And then you come back on a Monday or something and, you know, you're tired out and then it takes you a few days to get over the traveling. And then before you know it, you're off playing another gig. Mm. And that just, didn't work with the writing the writing i had to sort of commit myself to on a daily basis so i did the writing in the morning and it was a bit like revising i remember revising for exams you know because a bit like revising for a levels you try to get up quite early and work through everything and then by lunchtime hopefully you could sort of finish so that's what i did so then I found that I really did want to play some music just because it was a relief from the verbal, you know, diarrhea that I've been sort of pushing out. So it was nice to play some music. So the record came along in coordination with the book. And that's why I came up with that idea of doing the track, actually talking to myself as a sort of as I came out with that title. And then I thought, well, I can write a song called Talking to Myself. As far as I know, no one else has done that, uh, had a book and the same title as a track. So it was done before the lockdown. So the recording of that album was done in the autumn 2019 right. before the lockdown. Is that right? 20? Yeah. yeah, we did it in the autumn and we, we went in all the studio in South London me and Charlie and the musicians and we recorded seven tracks in two days and then the other three tracks well we recorded at Charlie's house and then in the January we recorded some overdubs with the horns and percussion Jody Lynn Scott uh, who was great that I knew from the 1970s she's been around for so long and she still plays great and she's lovely to be with and then the lockdown came. So it was done before the lockdown. The only problem was I hadn't really done my vocals and I had to go up to John Porter's to do most of the vocals. And that was actually during lockdown. But seeing it was just him and me in the studio weren't a problem. Mm. So I did all the harmonies, the bottom voices, the doubling up, all that stuff myself, which I actually loved doing because I knew just what I wanted to do. <clears throat> so I didn't have to show someone else. The only track that I got someone to sing on was that anyone see my heart. And I thought, well, I, I really want to get Mick to come sing on this. Mm. And he was over in, he was locked down in Italy. So I got him to do some singing on that. 
and he sent it back to me and then I sent it back to him. I said, no, 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 it's not quite right. You know, have another shot at it. Hmm. And he had a couple of shots at it and that's the only sort of lockdown bit of it. So I don't think you could have recorded as far as I can see because we were all in the studio at the same time and that's what made it kind of happen for me. You know, we enjoyed each other's, we had no idea that that kind of lockdown was going to come along, but we just enjoyed the working process so much being in the studio. You know, my uh, old friend, Neil Hubbard and Ollie, the bass player, and they, they just got so stuck into it. And I mean, we didn't even rehearse. We just, wow. we just, I think we sent them some demos of the tracks so they were familiar with them. But there was no rehearsal. We just went in the studio. I mean, the key to it for me was the arrangements. Me and Charlie worked really hard on the arrangements. And then they were slightly fine-tuned in the studios with the help of John Porter, who was there, who's, you know, a very old friend I'd known since the, you know, I think the 80s I was playing with him. And and I don't know if you know John, but he, he, he was kind of almost like a founder member of Roxy Music. He produced that right. uh, first album. And he played bass on some of those first recordings. Mm. And in fact, when I got hold of him, and he'd been in America for 20 years uh, producing records, and he came back over here. And he's also married to Linda Keith, who's a very old friend of ours, me and Carrie Ann's. And I knew her for when she actually went out with Keith Richards. Uh, that was in the 1960s. And most famously, she's known, if you watch the Jimi Hendrix biopic, someone's portraying her because she brought J- Hendrix over from New York to the UK. You know, she got him signed, basically. So they're, they're, they've been married for years. So we got John in on it. And John was brilliant, mixing it and sort of uh, making sure we got the best possible sound. And when it comes to sort of things like that New Orleans track, um, Merry Go Round, I mean, he was living in New Orleans for years and recording there. So he knows just how that's supposed to be, you know. So I think it's quite like authentic. You know what us old musicians are like. We like to be authentic.
It's a really, really fascinating book. Uh, your life story intertwines musical history, and, and obviously your st- family story is, is obviously fascinating through that. Was it just important for you to sort of document that and, and get the truth out there? Because there's myths around, etc. and this is one way to sort of tell the truth. Yeah, well, I, I tell you what, Jason, I, I picked up a book which I read by an Irish author. It was all about the father's of three famous Irishmen, James Joyce, Oscar Wilde, and William W.B. Yeats. And he'd written this biography of all three of them. And so, I'm, you know, obviously I'm interested in those people. So I read it, and then I put it down, and I thought, well, hey, I'm writing the story of my father. So if you consider, yeah. like you're talking about in the context of my brother being an important historical figure in the last 50 years, which he is. The story of his father, by definition, is of interest. Yes. So I was pleased to tell the truth because, I mean, yeah, I think I said it in the book, the only thing my father was upset about was when they someone wrote, when, when, when the Rolling Stones first came to prominence, someone put in, um, his father, Mick's father, is a PT teacher. Ah. And my father, for years, he, they sought to make it its physical education. It's how to educate yourself into, you know, how your body works. You know, it's, it's a wide brief. It's not physical training because when he first came into the area, it was very much the military kind of style. You know, up, down, up, down, put your arms out, put your arms in. You know, it's like being in the army. And he was very much against that. So when some journo wrote that he was a PT instructor, that really upset him. Mm. So I was trying to put the record straight in, you know, in what an influence my father and my mother, you know, had on myself and my brothers. So part of growing up, obviously your parents have huge influence on you. And um, it, it explains to an extent, you know, what my brother has achieved. You know, so and it fell to me as part of the family to do the writing because it's sort of like I'm not trying to create a dynasty here, but <laughs> <laughs> but I mean every family's got a fascinating story, and I I say to people, look, write it down. You know, write the family stories down because your grandchildren are gonna enjoy them. They're there. People can refer to them. They can be retold, and it, it's a lovely thing to do. So 
you know, whoever you are and whatever you don't, you start listening to family stories. I mean, they are fascinating. And I particularly find when I read, if I read biographies and stuff, that the early part is 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 very formative, isn't it? So, you know, the early years are interesting, childhood and all that. So I did, you know, spend a fair amount of time dealing with that subject. I mean, I sort of, I didn't feel myself confined to only write so many words on you know when you're a journalist they say right you we've got to write um about the future of this planet uh and we want 1500 words you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> i didn't feel confined that i should only write a certain amount and so for instance when i went took that trip to india you know, and it was only it's 18 months in my life, mm. but I mean, it's actually two chapters in the book because I kind of enjoyed writing it and I saw it as the kind of center of the book and it kind of comes in the middle and I didn't go to university. So in a way, it was partly my university was my travels, you know. You've got a song called Lassa Town. Was that song recalling back that, that period of your life? I went to Tibet in the 90s. You couldn't go to Tibet in the 60s. It was impossible. It was during the sort of Cultural Revolution and Chairman Mao. It was a closed place. And they invaded. They'd invaded Tibet and you weren't, no one was allowed to go there. It was like North Korea. And I went there in the 90s with Sue Lloyd Roberts, who was at that time was working for ITN News. She did a film about Tibet undercover. And she was my neighbor. So I went with her. And I wrote a story for The Guardian because I'd always wanted to go there. She knew that. So I wrote that song after being there in the 90s and meeting the Dalai Lama. And um, together, me and Sue did quite a lot of um, Tibetan charities, um, raising money for, um, you know, Tibetan orphans and stuff like that. And uh, an and awareness. So that was a that was a time we... You know, I was sort of reconnected with that. But, um, yeah, I did eventually get to Tibet. But, you know, it's an occupied country. You know, I mean, that's all come true now with the Uyghurs. I mean, what they did in Tibet or what they're still doing in Tibet, you know, it's times five with the Uyghurs. You know, this control, mind control. Of course, AI as artificial intelligence has become much more available so they're controlling people in that way, and that's how they did it in Tibet. You know, they control the children, they control what the children learn. When you see how communism and all that has worked and how they brainwash people, it's quite frightening. And people in the West, and when we complain about our mm. government and we complain about certain things, but we've got no concept of how the direction it's now traveling in in communist countries. Lassa town, Lassa town, to Lassa town. It's 
cold and dry and two miles down But you won't see the Dalai Lama around If you're heading down to Lassiter If you're hanging around the old Joe Kang Watch out for them video cams Plain clothes police follow you around Lassa looks like Chinatown But don't you try to run too fast Else that breath may be your last Sit with nodding monks and pray But don't say free to bed today In Lassa town, in Lassa town It's cold and dry and two miles down They're knocking all them buildings down If you're heading down to Lassa town They came with guns and dynamite To free the peasants from their chains And make damn sure they don't rise again But if you won't toe the party line Best effect and say goodbye Become a refugee without a home And never return to Lassa Town Lassa Town to Lassa Town It's cold and dry and two miles down But you won't see the Dalai Lama around If you're heading down to Lassa Town From the Kashmir lakes and the Asian steppes They said their prayers and kissed the ground And they headed down to Lassa Town To Lassa Town, to Lassa Town It's cold and dry and two miles down But you won't see the Dalai Lama around If you're heading down to Lassa Town It's amazing to think how young you were when you were on the London scene. You went into selling clothes. Well, we were sort of making clothes. We were we 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 got them made. We weren't just actually selling. Right. We were getting them made. I mean, I, I, nowadays people just have more made in China, don't they, <laughs> or somewhere like that. Yeah. yeah, I guess I was. But you know, like uh, when you're young, you sort of naivety is a kind of rather charming thing, isn't it? <laughs> It was just a way to raise a little bit of money. I didn't really have any way to make any money. So that seemed to be a kind of fun thing to do. We used to go and buy materials from um, you know, these big department stores and other places we found in the West End of London. And then we get uh, out workers to sew them up 
Um, I remember those tunics, those ghastly, they were Indian bedspreads mm. and they were kind of like quite long. I remember we used to pay the outworkers a pound eat, pound a piece to sew a garment up. I mean, it'd be slave labor these days. And um, I think I put it in the book. One of them was Karen. She sewed up some stuff for us. She had a sewing machine. She was quite a good seamstress. And then we were in her basement one day and uh, collecting some stuff or talking to her. And then this tall, gangly figure came clattering down the staircase into the basement with this kind of look on his face, kind of, who the hell let you in? And it was Pete Townsend. (laughs) She later married Pete Townsend. (laughs) So it's quite, you know... you know, the scene then was like there was a lot of stuff going on. There was, you know, art galleries, Indica, magazines starting up, alternative magazines. There was all the music. There was the fashion. And everyone was doing – it was sort of like all one scene kind of thing. It was um, it was a kind of – the main thing was to get in there and contribute something and have fun and make a bit of money and then go out you know, do have a bit of a rave and, you know, and I, I was on the scene. So what else was I going to do? I mean, there's also pirate radio and all that stuff. I mean, I wasn't qualified to be a musician. I, I didn't really come to being a musician till after I came back from India when I was already 21, 22. Mm. So I wasn't doing any music, but, you know, I figured I must have listened to so much music in the end, it just all rubbed off on me. One of your your clothes was um, famously Jimi Hendrix jacket. Yeah, that's right. He wore it. Or it was photographed. It was a, the English album of Are You Experienced. It's not on that one, but it was on the American one and on the back of a you know like the releases in America were different from the from the UK and uh, it's that kind of crazy jacket with the eyeballs on the sleeve. Uh, it's kind of psychedelic. It was sort of painted on silk with Indian inks by this girl called Julia. I mean, really, uh, my contribution to it was just organizational. We had the idea, me and this guy called Jay, and then we executed it and and sold it on. And we we didn't actually make it. That was totally her creation. And then we made two other jackets, one for Mick, which depicted Judge Block on the back. It was the judge who put Mick and Keith inside and Robert Fraser. And another one was one that we did for John Lennon, which the, so we had a quite that was quite an exclusive clientele. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we've been discussing the fact that after you come back from India and you'd been on the London scene and and the music and and your your sort of first album and the, you know there's some really good tracks like something new on there. Um, I've re- read in your book that you were managing the mobile recording studio at, at your brother's house at the time and then started to record. Is that right? Well, basically, I came back from doing the first show I ever did was Hair. And it was like, in, luckily, it was in Tel Aviv. So no one got to see it from the UK. So I, God knows if it was dreadful or not. But it was fun to do. I got to sing and dance on stage. And I'd studied a little bit of singing in India. So I, you know, I started to learn about singing. And then we came back to the UK. And at that time, the Stones were finishing up this album, Sticky Fingers, which has got brown sugar and all that stuff on it. And Mick had bought this sprawling, rambling, massive mansion in the country, which 
in those days was like nobody wanted these places. I mean, he picked it up for a song, really. It, was, it wasn't expensive at all. But of course, the running costs will be expensive. So, with their mobile studio, which was largely built by Stu, Ian Stewart, he organized all that. They had a truck that they parked outside the house. So, me and my partner, Vivian, we had nowhere to stay. So we were allowed to stay in the house. My brother didn't live there. There was no one actually living there. So we kind of made it into a home and we sort of lived there. But And then bands came down to record from time to time. Uh, and when they recorded, it was great because we could put all the heating on sort of full and, you know, there was food to eat. And uh, there were some great bands there, the Who, Zeppelin, the Faces, lots of other people, like Gallagher and Lyle and... Those of bands came down and we were kind of helping to look after them. Although it was a kind of, we weren't actually paid for it. It was just, we were allowed to live there. So it was a kind of unusual circumstances. But then the truck was very often, if it wasn't booked out for something, it was just sitting there. So there was um, a guitar player called John Uribe who came over to play on Bobby Keys' album. And he was a kind of oddball character a brilliant guitar player, L.A. hombre kind of guy. And he more or less hunkered down the state of Stargrove. And so with the guy who was the kind of um, the up-and-coming young kid who worked on the truck, you know, as an assistant there, he was around too. So we got free use of this truck. And it was really through John Uribe, me and the writer, Dave Pierce. And John showed us how to record on the truck, which in those days was, you know, you put down a drum track with a bass track or maybe a drum track with a guitar track. And then you, you built it up with the shakers and percussion and everything had to be very steady. I mean, they had no clicks in those days. You had, so you had to be, you know, the drum track had to be really stable, not speed up or slow down. And then, you know, he'd add the guitars and we'd have a guide vocal. And so he showed us how to build a recording and that was invaluable really and not only that his standards were you know he had standards he had good standards it wasn't sloppy i mean a few years later punk came along and that all went out the window mm. <laughs> if i'd have been a little bit younger i would have sort of probably ridden a punk wave and you know my songs would have been much more punky and i think it would have been a totally different ball game but as it happened, this was a sort of pre-punk period. It was, a, it was a kind of strange period, really, because there wasn't that much creative stuff coming out. Yeah. It was all a bit stagnant. And that's one reason that then, soon after that, that punk came along, because they were just fed up with this boring kind of sausage factory sort of music system turned out by all the major labels and that was one thing i sort of came up against i mean we were quite we were quite loush in our attitude and we were actually the band i had but i wouldn't say we were punky but we were quite on edgy and i was always told oh this is not smooth enough it's got to be you know much more sophisticated and all that and that was one of my problems but I mean, John Dent, who's a, a great engineer, a sound guy, he maintained that those bands in the 70s sound good because they were recorded on two-inch tape and put out on vinyl. 
And so he listened to it today. It sounds all right, actually. Your next album, um, Ventures of Valentine Box, The Ventriloquist, you had, uh, was it Dave Edmonds on, on one of the songs? Was it Like a Dog? Yeah, he was living, I did that at Rockfield, right. which obviously later became quite famous. I mean, it already was quite famous. He lived down the road and he came along and played 
some bottleneck guitar. And um, then I had also the drummer was Pick Withers, who went and joined Dire Straits. And then I had a guitar player came down and overdubbed, or did he play live? Jim Ryan, who's I still see knocking around on these documentaries because he played on, he did all that Carly Simon stuff. Right. He was quite a sort of hot guitar player that he came over and played in London. He was on that record. And I wrote some of the tunes with Andy Bowen, who I knew because he was with the Billy Gaff sort of mob. And he obviously joined Status Quo. He's played Status Quo, played piano with them for years. And I really liked Andy. We got on very well. We we actually were going to put a band together to tour in the U.S., me and Andy, and um, we tried to get a couple of other players, and <clears throat> Chris Staten. But then they sort of like said, oh, I don't think we want to play with these kind of junior guys. They're a bit, you know, they'd already been out on the road with Joe Cocker. So they were kind of like, looked down their noses at us a bit, probably, obviously, with reason. So uh, that didn't happen, which was which was a shame. I mean, it, we were. I was a bit of a junior, sort of unproven. Mm. But we had a few songs. Some of those songs weren't bad. Yeah. And the direction, the direction was sort of interesting. I mean, I even on that second album, I had accordion and stuff. I was experimenting, you know, with kind of different genres a little bit which wasn't really what people were doing at the time. The, the, I remember I went to a record where they played your record at the record company, and the other record they compared me with was Backman Turner Overdrive, <laughs> which was sort of heavy sort of rock. You know, it was kind of rock that had just been honed down to the basics, and that was a sort of territory that was much safer, well, like status quo, you know. But for me, that I wasn't really interested in I mean... I listen to all that music, but I'm more interested in kind of breaking a bit of ground, which even mm. though that this latest record, Mixing Up the Medicine, is a bit, some of it is a bit of a throwback to kind of old tunes, but still, I haven't really explored that kind of jazz, you know, some of those tracks are a bit like Mose Allison jazz sort of trio. I mean, but look, you know, look at Amy Winehouse. I mean, yeah. she was kind of recreating old kind of R&B stuff. Everyone loved it.
by the late 70s in your memoir, you described going over to L.A., but that seemed like quite a difficult time. Yeah, it was, I guess, um, because I didn't have any money. And being broke in L.A. is pretty bad news. One of the problems is you can't get about anywhere if you haven't got a car. So you have to find a girlfriend who's got a car can drive you around because then they get a bit bored driving you around, picking you up. You, and you can't, there's no public transport in L.A. Uh, I guess now you've got Uber, but that didn't exist then. And then if you've got no money, it's no good. So, yeah, I was a bit stuck up a gum tree uh, without any escape route. Yeah, you know, there's some episodes in the book, like, you know, I hung out with Clapton and yeah. the band. That was kind of fun. And then I sort of I sort of saw the writing on the wall and I ditched it and took an acting course. Right. And I came back to the UK and did a play straight away. And that was right and bang in on the punk scene. And anyone playing anything other than punk was totally pilloried by the punk movement. I mean, they trashed everybody. I mean, obviously, including my brother's band, they were a prime object to be trashed by the punks. So you couldn't get arrested playing blues or jazz or bluegrass or whatever it was you played. If you weren't playing punk, all the magazines, all the music papers, and they were just full of the latest punk band. So it wasn't a bad time to sort of be absent from the music scene. And I did some, I did some, you know, acting there. I was involved in the theatre for some years. But though some of the stuff that I did do, I mean, I had a, we had a little company. I was in the Black Theatre of Brixton. Yeah. There was some music in the, I played on, on one of the plays. I, I got my old Martin F. Hole out and I played a song. I remember that. And then, I sang in it. There was some music in it. You know, it's all performing arts, really. Yeah. Whether you're doing the theatre, I mean, obviously theatre spoken word, but or you're doing music. And I think, really, when I came back to music many years later, my approach was quite different because I've I've been I've done theatre, so I the stage was a I knew kind of what it was about. Yeah, I mean, when we get to early 90s and when we get uh, Chris Jagger's Atcher, tracks like Stand Up For The the Foot, it's got like a really broad range of sounds and, and sort of Cajun influences at times. Um, it must have been great to get back into music and recording again. Well, yeah, and then the irony or the, the reality of it was that that album, my sort of comeback album in the 90s, was the last album ever recorded on the Stones track. Oh, okay. Which is quite kind of amusing. It was parked up at Shepparton Studios. And I got the go-ahead by a dear old chap called Bob Fisher, who just died recently, worked for a lot of record companies. He put out this record for mine on Sequel Records. And it was, well, you wouldn't say it was very mainstream, because as you say, it had kind of Cajun influence numbers bit country, bit rock and rolly crossover, great people playing on it. And, you know, it sounded good. And that was done on tape. I remember I had to buy the rolls of tape, a hundred quid each. So, um, and Mick McKenna did it on, on the stone struck. And, um, you know, this was kind of at the period people started getting interested in world music and stuff because CDs came back. When CDs came back in, people's tastes, they suddenly rediscovering, like, they pick up John Lee Hooker CD. You're like, who? John Lee Hooker? Never heard of him. Oh, yeah, he's good. And so, like, you suddenly started hearing all these re-released CDs. 
and so people's tastes widened and African music and Indian music and all this people with a slightly more educated palette. So yeah, that album came out and it was quite well received, but I mean, it didn't sell diddly squat, you know, commercially, commercially speaking, it really didn't sell. We did a tour in the States and they, they, they kind of dug it. But I remember a guy, in, I was on a radio station in New York and this interviewer said, well, what is Zydeco music? And I said, you want to lie me to explain to an American what, you know, music originated here is, you know. Mm. So it was a bit like, you know, when Clapton and, you know, the Stones went over to the U.S., they'd never heard of blues. They thought, you know, they thought um, Crossroads was an Eric Clapton tune.
one of your songs, DJ Blues, has got mentions people like um, Elmo James, uh, Buddy Guy, references, um, those influences explicitly. Yeah, and that was the last track I put on that album, Act of Faith, it was. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to get mixed, sing something on on a track. And I thought, well, I want to do backup. So it's the same with Sam Brown. I've got Sam Brown singing. I thought, I'm not going to ask Sam to do backups. Mm. Let's get her to sing a verse, you know, or two. And so I had to write it specifically. So I wrote that song specifically with that in mind. And it was sort of paying homage to a lot of, Old dudes. Well, I mean, the Stones did that in that they didn't. They went and did a blues album, didn't they? And that was a huge hit. Yeah. And that track predates that. And um, yeah, and, and and he did a good, he did a perform good performance on that. And and I was gratified by the fact that you know, I'd actually just written the song. You know, so as a songwriter, that's what you kind of you kind of end up being pleased. I mean, performances are great, but you more you're pleased with the songs you write and. If other people record them or people like them, that that that's kind of that's its own reward. Hey, Mr. DJ, won't you play this track? We had enough of that jiving chat. Why don't you play some good time blues? Get 
Concertina Jack. That's a really fun song of yours and has got a, a great sound. Is that a, a squeeze box on it? Yes, Charlie. Charlie plays a squeeze box. He, he first started playing that with um, when he played with Ronnie Lane in that Slim Chance band. And um, I just played with Charlie last night. They all loved He got the squeeze box uh, and he called it out last night. And they all loved it, I tell you. There's something about it. There's something about real instruments that just played in front of you that you can't replace with sort of, a, you know, a, a, a MacBook and a, a bunch of samples. It's just not very exciting. Yeah, Constantina Jack, and that tells the story of an ancestor of mine who who went to um, Australia and um, left 12 kids in Dartford and started a new life in Australia. And it was a bit of a mystery as to why he went in the first place. And he may have owed some money that he couldn't repay or he was on the run. We just don't know. But my uncle told me this story, and I just like the name, Constantine the Jack. He went out to the Sydney on a sailing ship, you know, in the 1880s, with his stepmother, who was already in her 70s, and set up shopping... Um, in Sydney, so I've got a lot of relatives over there in Australia. I've been out there, and I don't know if you've been to Australia, but mm. you know, everyone comes from somewhere else other than Australia usually. So, got 12 kids and a baker's shop. He's up early in the morning and work till he drops. When the loaves are out on the racks, he plays some tunes for the boys at back. Constantine Jack, he got children to feed, dough to need, squeeze box to squeeze. Constantine Jack, yeah. He took off to the Antipodes. Was it a woman on money that made him leave? When he reached old Sydney town, pretty soon the word spread around. There goes Constantine Jack. He got children to feed, dough to need, squeeze by the sweet Constantine Jack. Squeeze hey. it.
Was it important in the last five years to capture some of the best of your material since the 90s with all the best one of the possibly newer songs on that was Avalon Girls yeah that was the only new one I, I'd written when I was in Glastonbury which was a bit of fun but that was BMG really they brought up my catalogue so we put out a you know, compilation album as a sort of sampler and we might re-release some of the CDs um, talking about it now because you know, they gave me a lot of confidence in my, you know, what I'd done and respect. BMG out of Berlin, the Hartwick. No English company. Um, Bob Fisher was interested in me. But, I mean, I think that act of faith, that was put out by another German company. Right. You know, unfortunately, this country, you know, a lot of the music is very fashion-led. Yeah. They, they don't seem to value artists that have been around a while and... Um, you know, they struggle. And it's very, very hard to get to the U.S. because of the um, all the restrictions and visa requirements and all that stuff. So the future looks a bit bleak, quite honestly. What You know, what? not only COVID, this Brexit mm. thing is a complete unknown.
FTR latest album, Mixing Up the Medicine, one of the more touching songs is Hey Brother, and I read that Charlie was um, talking about that song, Charlie Hart. He said that it's not just about your brother, it's about everyone's brother, so it's got a, a universal appeal, but also works personally. That's right, yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, I just was sitting like at the piano in my barn just like one rainy afternoon and just kind of that song came out and I had it on my iPhone and when me and Charlie got together that was one of the songs I I played him I I wasn't thinking it was a particularly strong candidate for the record but he said yeah yeah that one we're putting that one in and I said you sure about that and he, he said yeah yeah that's the great thing about working with a partner you know they they kind of got a much better overview than sometimes the writer is not best judge of his own material yeah and we did it at the um a little studio in in south london and all the musicians went out to have a bite to eat in a cafe and me and charlie just stayed in and just put a couple of takes of that down live that's what that one was but it, you know someone said i mean, someone wrote to me and said I'm having terrible trouble with my brother at the moment and I listened to that song and I, I really, really touched me. So those are the little comments you get that are quite, not everybody is um, forthcoming in their feelings. Yeah, and I mean, men you know, don't always find it quite so hard to deal with their feelings, especially, you know, from our generation, you know, men weren't supposed to cry or, <laughs> get upset about things. I mean, I'm not. I'm saying that that's something in that, but it's just expressing a real feeling. And um, I mean, that's what kind of songs do, don't they? They they try and encapsulate a kind of emotional feeling. It's not just about showing off. The video for that for that track is is also really great. It's got got you at the recording studio. It's got photos of of you and your brother in there. And it's Part of it is a little bit like a visual representation of talking to myself, really, the, your memoir. Yeah, well, it also all came together, didn't it? You know, it was funny. You know, and we, and we played some of those songs last night, and people were really loved them. And they actually warmed to them more than they probably hadn't heard any of my songs. It's not easy playing. We played them. Um, <laughs> it's not easy playing new songs, so you're not very confident about it. We played that Love's Around the Corner. We played that tune and they all loved it. And there was me and Charlie, piano and guitar. I mean, it wasn't very elaborate. And they re- and we played Happy as a Lamb. They really, they really kind of, uh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, within these islands, let, let's face it, we've had a hard time lately with this COVID and I don't know about this Brexit thing, but I mean, kind of phony nationalism that I really don't like. But at the same time, we do produce some good things in these islands and, you know, musical stuff that we do, <laughs> not to say other countries don't, yeah. but, you know, that we we've, we punch above our weight with yeah. the music and, uh, and arts and stuff and with the cultural things. And, you know, I think people, you know, they identify kind of people, connect, there's quite a connection for me because... I mean, obviously, over the years, a lot of people have followed the Rolling Stones. I mean, it's been a cultural phenomenon. <clears throat> and then they see me, and they see what I'm doing, and they're proud of that, too. Yeah. And this is the problem with the press. It's always this, oh, you only play for a few people. Your brother plays for thousands of people and stuff. Now, it doesn't really matter. 
I mean, just last night there was, I don't know, about 80 people there. So what? So they're really proud to be there for what you do, and they're pleased and they're enjoying it. It's homegrown. And, you know, I think that makes them feel good and gives them kind of um, a strength. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Um, as I said at the start, I think your new album is is your best album, and um, your your memoir is is just fascinating. Thanks, yeah, it's, it's it's a great read, and, and the album's a great listen. Well, I really appreciate your comments, and they're very thoughtful, and they're obviously done from a you know you've done your research and everything. You're not just just kind of asking me to sort of fire away. So many thanks for that. It's my pleasure, Chris. And good luck with your podcast. <laughs> and no problem at all. Great. All right, and thanks, bye-bye. Jason. Bye. Hey, brother, have you got a little minute to spare? I'm here just sitting down on this chair. Talk just as two It's so long since you've seen me And I've seen you But the same remains true Cause it's a long time That you didn't go Singing this song to you I know that I'm so far from the crowd And if I was there I might act up too loud Else I might be too proud So I'll stay sitting here in this chair With my two friends, the wind and the to spare If not I shall offer up this little prayer for us both to
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you. Thank you.